my name's Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, oh man, it's festival season! Jump into your limos, drive down, wave to the paparazzis as you go see the new premiere of... Oh, I don't know, what movie's premiered at TIFF this year? Glass Onion. Yeah! I was there at the press screening. That was surprisingly not full. I guess people don't have knives out fever. Yeah, here we are on Festival Street. We're looking around. All the stars are here and passing us by. There's Brad, there's Julia, there's George. Did Festival Street used to last all week? Because this year it lasted like a couple days. I think it's only always only lasted a couple days. Mm. I'm sorry, we're getting into the weeds already, but we're talking about this year's Toronto International Film Festival, and Festival Street is when for a couple of days during the festival they turn King Street into a... They just block it off. Yeah, they so block no it off. Cars, Tons no of uh, brand activations... As, as they're called and lineups and stuff like that stand in front of like the tiff letters and take a photo in front of them who wouldn't do that i guess me i didn't do it yeah, yeah i didn't do it either <laughs> but anyway we're talking about the toronto international film festival justin and i we are toronto residents we have been going to the festival for many years a long and storied relationship with the festival and this year we both had press or industry passes did we do an episode on tiff before i forgot to check before i started recording we did an episode on the festival in general just the idea of the festival Mm -hmm. a long time ago but we've never done one where we talked about the year itself this Mm -hmm. is tiff 2022 we both saw a ton of the new movies some of the big blockbusters your award season favorites the stuff that's going to be up for a little man called oscar this year and we're also very arty people so we definitely checked out the uh less populated screenings to take in some of that stuff that you won't see anywhere else we also felt some of the ghouls and goblins and things that go bump in the night at the midnight madness program Mm -hmm. we tried to get a broad range of the festival We tried to keep our finger on the pulse of what's happening in the zeitgeist of international (laughs) cinema. And by that, does it mean that I had a list of like 45 movies I was preparing to see? And then I had a sudden moment of lucidity and I cut it down to 20 movies? Yes, that is what happened. Yeah, so for the first two days of the festival, I saw like four movies each day. Mm -hmm. And it was great. I loved it. I just loved like going from dream world to dream world. (laughs) Like all sorts of different places, just feeling, just feeling being immersed in movies. And then after a couple of days, I thought, okay, I gotta, I would like to still be present at home during all this. When you're looking at the movies and you're like, and you like close your eyes i'm just gonna rest them for 30 seconds and you wake up and the credits are playing well sunday morning when we went to see fablemans which we'll get to i was like okay it's over um i wonder wonder if there are any other movies i can see um dolly land (laughs) i guess i could see that and then i thought why don't i nap instead why don't i go home for a nap (laughs) yeah and you've been hitting some midnights no disrespect to mary heron uh but but yes i have been hitting some midnights which is hard for me these days Mm -hmm. i'm an old man especially that all the big you know popular movies tip very specifically puts them at like 8 a.m to weed out the people who would come and see it oh my god i was up at an ungodly hour to see the new film by your friend and mine steven spielberg some of the nights I just didn't go to sleep. And I would go to midnight, come back, stay up until I have to leave till 6.30 to get in line like an hour, an hour and a half early before the movie starts. Then I went home and I died. This is all post-life ghost talking where I just do the podcast forever. So yes, we had press passes, which was really fun. Saw oh, a bunch I of... had an industry pass, which gets me less stuff than a press pass does. Yeah, that's probably true because we had to be in a different line for the Fablements. Uh, people don't care about this. But... No, you were just ahead of me. That's why. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Here's the thing, folks. I was very interested to go to TIFF this year because 
I haven't been for the last few years. It's been a hybrid festival. In the pandemic year, it was all online. And to me, a film festival and this film festival in particular is about being there. It's about being on the streets and seeing your buddies, seeing your friend Justin walk past, seeing... I don't know, the other celebrities like Josh from the Sleezoids and whoever else, whoever the other podcast <laughs> high other rollers celebrities, are. You know? <laughs> et cetera. And George and Julia and Brad and, and the stars. Yeah. <laughs> George Clooney. Oh, uh, yeah, he probably has his own podcast now, right? That's right. That's right. So it was great to be back at TIFF. It felt a bit like TIFF's comeback year. That's what I would write if I were writing a press release for TIFF. <laughs> yep. And what's this? Will just got a job as <laughs> the media for TIFF. <laughs> so let's start with... I know a movie that both of us saw, Weird, the Al Yankovic story. So this was the first movie at this year's Midnight Madness program, the lineup for cult movies and aspiring cult movies. And this was a parody biopic of Weird Al Yankovic, the famous song parodist. Remember Funny or Die? Remember when they made a trailer, the Weird Al Yankovic story starring Aaron Paul like 10 years ago? Well, they're back. And now it's in feature length form. Aaron Paul is not in it. Instead, we have his dramatic equivalent, Daniel Radcliffe. And the idea is, what if there was a dead serious, somber musical biopic of the Walk the Line or Elvis variety, but about Weird Al Yankovic that imagined him as being like a real musician, quote unquote. How dare you? I'm sorry, I know. I, I, I regretted that when I said it instantly, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like a like a pop guy who's not a guy who does song parodies, basically. I mean, all right, let me just jump in and say Weird Al does many different songs, not I know. only song Listen, parodies. Listen, I've heard Frank's 2000-inch TV. I've heard, uh, what are some of the other ones? <laughs> um, <laughs> what are the other Skipper ones? Skipper Dan. Genius and Frank. Was that? Yeah, that's uh, a not a official song parody. And so this movie, though, I think that everybody going in should steal themselves. Number one, Roku produced. Number it, two, it, most importantly, shot in 18 days. Oh, is that so? Well, not a lot of fun to see the Roku logo at a film festival, mm-hmm. but whatever. All the streamers are producing movies. Hey, I went to Midnight Madness. Weird Al sat like five feet away from me. Seemed to enjoy himself through the screening. Seemed a little bit nervous, too, because this being his second film thing that he was very heavily involved in after the disappointment at the time of its release of UHF, which he starred in, wrote, and directed. And not to digress too much, but I believe, did you not see UHF on Festival Street? <laughs> I did see UHF. Outdoor screening. It was great. There's yeah. Weird Al dancers came out and danced. Uh, what a delight. Was Al himself present? No, I wish he had uh, saddled up, but I think that, you know, he's probably stressed about the screening that he was about to have, so it would be weird if he wandered over to, I don't know, the 30 people who had showed up to watch UHF outside. Well, it sounds like it was fun. Now, I saw Weird at a press and industry screening the next, the so next just day. So stone faces, <laughs> no one laughing. Uh, well, people laughed, but I do wish I saw it at Midnight Madness, because mm-hmm. I'm sure it would have been more fun. Like, the biggest problem with this movie is it's Walk Hard, mm-hmm. and Walk Hard's already been made, and it's better. And Walk Hard also had a much bigger budget, could be much sillier. Uh, the indication that I got during the Q&A afterwards was that Weird Al's original script was wilder, and they were like, well, we just can't do this. Okay. So, and I think that is present in the movie version. It's also 108 minutes long, which is 18 minutes too long. I agree. And don't you feel the air between the laughs a little bit? I wish it was a little tighter. What, thinking about it afterwards, I was like, all right. 
I could easily cut all of this Madonna stuff where there's not that many jokes. Just tighten it up. I mean, what people will remember is the decision that the filmmakers made that it portrays Weird Al as being the most successful musician ever. Right. Which leads to the one big gag where um, history diverges about one particular song. And that's a really funny moment in the movie. And from there, it seems to have difficulty kind of finding other gags beyond restating the premise that isn't this ridiculous that we're taking it in this direction yeah i mean just the idea of imagine if you made a serious biopic about weird al yankovic and were not faithful to his life once you get the joke the second half of the movie i think basically is just like no matter how outlandish it gets no matter where it goes the joke remains the same Mm -hmm. and so there's just a lot of diminishing returns i will say there are laughs yes and if you're interested, I would recommend this movie. Yeah. And you get to hear a lot of those Weird Al songs again, which is fun. They're very catchy. Get to hear Amish Paradise again. I do wish it was more of a dramatic actor in the central role. Dan Radcliffe is fine, but he doesn't really like make much of an impact. Doesn't have the gravitas. Yeah. Thing. Like someone like Aaron Paul. If you watch that trailer, like he's playing it real as opposed to Daniel Radcliffe, who can never quite escape the fact that this is a funnier die film. Shot like a funnier die film. Put the camera down. Shoot it. Let's get out of there. What if it was like a Daniel Craig? or someone like that. <laughs> that would be like, so funny. Daniel Craig playing Weird Al. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, you saw Glass Onion. I did see Glass Onion. What did you think? Did you like Knives Out? I, I liked Knives You'll Out, You'll like actually. Glass Onion, okay. and you're probably going to watch it sitting down on your couch because it's a Netflix original movie. Yeah, I could have seen it. Uh, I had the time, but I thought I'd rather respect its natural habitat. So I had it. a big smile on my face the entire time. Feels like a COVID movie. Much smaller than Knives Out. Mm-hmm. Like, And it's more interested in kind of recontextualizing stuff over and over and over and over again including a huge chunk of the movie as opposed to Knives Out which is continually like pulling the rug out of you as it constantly evolves. So I mean, it's more of the same. It's not like revolutionary by any stretch of the imagination. And that's fine. Let's see. What else are ones that we both saw? So we both saw one of the more divisive movies of the festival, Darren Aronofsky's The Whale with Brendan Fraser. Mm -hmm. Um, I got to say, I was in an emotionally vulnerable position watching it. Uh, First of all, any movie about like a father dying is going to hit me really hard now. And uh, my, my dog died at around this same time as well. So like... At the end of this movie, I was just like a blubbering mess. Like, Darren Aronofsky, as man- emotionally manipulative a filmmaker as there is, just fucking tugging on my heartstrings, you know? No, I've been fascinated about people, like, kind of really fighting against this movie. The fat phobia stuff. Fat phobia, and also it's emotionally manipulative nature. That mm-hmm. they're like, ah, too many Oscar speeches, too much looking into Brendan Fraser's big watery eyes. Yeah, so, I mean, sometimes that that stuff, those emotional shortcuts, mm-hmm. the, the cliches get used because they work. Yeah, I mean, that's why they exist. Yeah, so, I don't know, it worked on me a lot of the time, what can I say? But the fat phobia thing, I have mixed feelings about. I, I don't know what you think about this, but first of all, I think there's a meaningful distinction to be drawn between, like, a, a normal overweight person and, in this movie, a character who's, like, 650 pounds, who is... Who is constantly discussing how self-destructive he is. Who's eating himself to death, like purposefully basically Mm -hmm. i mean i think that's a different situation than well on the patreon episode we're going to talk about jiminy glick and la la wood where it's like not to bring a lot of righteous indignation against this but but like a lot of movies position fatness as a moral failing in and Mm -hmm. of itself which i don't think this movie does actually i don't think it positions him being fat i don't think it says that he's fat 
because he's weak. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think the movie is basically saying like he's self-destructive and he will destroy himself at this point in any means that he can. Um, but that's also something tough to argue with people who have that visceral reaction to it. That who feel triggered by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's fair. You know, mm-hmm. obviously you can have whatever um, reaction you have to it. Aronofsky does kind of delight in like, look at this guy. There's like somber music playing. I, f- I feel it's ugly yeah. looking. The people who say that it indulges too much in the body horror stuff. Mm-hmm. I can I can sympathize with that a little yeah. bit. I think there's some truth to that. But let's talk about the real reason this movie works. Mr. Brendan Fraser. I think he's amazing. Yeah. I think he's terrific. And, you know, Darren Aronofsky, whatever else is good or bad about him, when he builds a movie around an actor, he knows what makes that actor work. And he completely understands that Brendan Fraser, he is not only sympathetic, but there's also sadness to that, you know, almost everything that he says. It's interesting. When Brendan Fraser was at the peak of his celebrity, like when he was making movies like The Mummy, he still wasn't someone who people took super seriously, Mm -hmm. and he still didn't project a lot of strength on screen. You remember Gods and Monsters? People were like, look at this Brendan Fraser. He's so miscast in this, this handsome dude. And like in The Mummy movies, I mean, compared to somebody like Harrison Ford, there's there's a softness. He was almost like a joke. Mm. as that character even though he was objectively handsome and like in good shape he's goofy he's yeah. always been goofy and there's it's something about his face he's got this very wide open face it's his it's in his mouth it's in his eyes which are big and expressive yeah there's just this softness to him which this movie you know really uh, uses to its advantage so many so many shots of just him with his eyes communicating so much and in him there's something about him that conveys somebody who who once was different once was stronger but has always been vulnerable i uh, found it interesting as well that people thought it was a very miserable experience which it is a very sad one but i found his character so compelling in the way that he portrayed it on screen that i didn't mind like oh my god is this almost over beyond the like you know sl- low walk you take into doom that the movie is actually laying out by showing you the days of the week. Yeah, and he makes it a complex character because, like, he's funny. Mm-hmm. You know, the scenes where he's talking about literature, he's smart, and Frazier as an actor conveys how much stronger he becomes when he's talking about literature and his ideas about truth and that sort of thing. I can imagine somebody else in this role really leaning into the misery of it, but there's a whole tapestry of emotions that come from Frazier. Yeah, there could be some kind of falseness to somebody else giving this performance that you would assume that the character himself is lying you know through the days and you get a little bit of that in his performance but you also get the genuineness of Fraser's character that he wants to do these things and the way and the situation that he's in he can't anymore okay let's talk about the Fablemans Mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg's new one loved it one of Steven Spielberg's (laughs) best (laughs) Uh, we we watched this one together Um, both of us went in with very low expectations although this was like in the lead up to the festival, I kept looking at the schedule thinking, I don't know, it looks like a pretty underwhelming year. But then they landed this one and it felt like they felt like reputationally very important for Tiff to get this. Now, let's set some runway here. I believe you've disliked every Spielberg film for a while now. Well, Bridge of Spies is OK, but like, yeah, it's fine. But no, I didn't like The Post. I didn't like I enjoyed um, The Post. Yeah. What, Very goofy. What else has he done lately? Who, Ready, uh, Player Ready Player One. One. Holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. bad. Uh, I haven't seen West Side Story still. Oh, yeah. I wasn't a big fan of West Side Story either. And just generally, Spielberg's not my guy. I mean, he's... I love Spielberg. He's my okay. guy. He's your guy. I say that 
even though there are like 10 Spielberg movies I love and mm-hmm. you know he's he's like 1941 always <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of you another know, bad even, Spielberg film even always has moments in it that are good yeah it does it has John Goodman in it because like just as a technical filmmaker no one is is better than him actually well at one point yes that was true Okay, so we're going to disagree with this because I just want to say off mic, Justin was giving me shit because in the review that I wrote for this movie, I was talking about his technical perfection. You know what? In the sentence that you wrote, I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it's difficult to argue with that you said that he's technically perfect, that he understands film in the way that no one else does. How to pace a scene, how to cut. I disagree disagree with that in this particular film. All right, uh, my hackles are back up. But his compositions, I was just watching this movie Mm -hmm. and thinking about how every scene always starts in a visually interesting way. Mm -hmm. And then the way he moves his camera through the scene to communicate information is he's peerless. Uh So this movie, The Fablemans, is Spielberg's retelling of his youth, his falling in love with movies, and basically his parents' divorce, which he's spoken very openly about that much of his art is defined by. Mm -hmm. And at the Q&A that we saw with him after, he talked about how much of his career has been about sort of refracting or deferring the divorce it's like you tell a story of divorce but you put an alien in it or something like that but in this one he felt himself finally ready to address it head on now i'll start right away being positive and saying that i love the opening sequence where a young spielberg goes and sees movies for the first time sees a train crash in the cecil b demille film greatest show on earth and not quite understanding what he reacted to wants to get trains and then he crashes them and then his parents are like listen you can't crash your trains how about we get you a camera you film them crashing and then you can watch it over and over and over again without having to damage it there's a fun joke there where he had to do it from multiple angles which means he had to crash it multiple times love it that is kind of getting into filmmaking in a way that is difficult to articulate but that Spielberg does in a very moving way in those opening sequences and I found that stretch of the movie interesting because if the movie says anything about his art, it reveals anything about what he thinks his vision is. Like the Michelle Williams character, the mother says, oh, this is him trying to control his fear. Mm-hmm. And you can see that all through his filmography, whether it's in the silly movies or in the serious movies like Schindler's List or something. It's all about him in so many of them trying to be like, oh, my God, how could how could the Holocaust happen? How could slavery happen? Well, here's a movie about the people who made it right. The people who affirmed humanity's essential goodness. How do I look at World War Two? In the United States on early on, well, let's put a lot of chaos in it. Let's make it silly. We're far enough from it that we can do this mad magazine style thing, even though I don't really get humor. And because of that, <laughs> it becomes a lot of spectacle without many laughs. That is Spielberg's 1941, which you should watch this holiday season. It is a Christmas movie. Now, you didn't like the Fablemans overall, though. No. What, what was it about it? Well, there's a lot of things that I didn't like about it. I'll say right from the get-go that I do not like the way Spielberg films have looked in the last decade. Okay. That is due to a cinematographer, Yamas Kaminsky, who loves the color blue. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and boy, I posted a review of West Side Story. I've never received more negative comments on that review than anything I have ever written on Letterboxd. And one of the arguments that I had is it looks digital. And people mm-hmm. are like, he sh- shoots it on 35. It does not look digital. It does, though, because he controls it so much, especially the way that, like, like digital patches of light are on people's skin. Don't like that. But that is, 
you know, a broad thing, but mm-hmm. that's not like the content of the movie that bothered me. The content of the movie that bothered me is that uh, this is the thing about my criticism of this, is that people can just say, well, he's looking back as a child. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. It's all kind of, you know, a fable. L- look at the title, The Fablements. That's why he didn't call it The Spielbergs. Right off the get-go, I do not like Paul Dano or Michelle Williams' performances. Okay. Paul Dano's performance is like, hey, kid, how's it going? It's a little how's, one note, how's yeah. It go? And Michelle Williams, I don't know what what she's doing. Uh, she, she's going big. Yeah, she's going very big. And it's also like hilarious fan fiction where Spielberg is basically at the center of anything that's happening in his family. It's about not only divorce, but a divorce that Spielberg basically triggers himself in a way that I will not spoil. It involves movie making and is bananas. Uh, yeah, that that was pretty wacky stuff, frankly. I <laughs> mean, the, the stuff about for me about Spielberg as a young filmmaker is when the movie is at its most embarrassing. Like, oh, it is so embarrassing because in this movie, Spielberg is the best. Like, there is no struggle in filmmaking at all. The only struggle is him giving it up and having to pick it back up again. I mean, I thought the scenes where it's like he's making his eight millimeter movies with all the school kids. And it's like he's already just the best director ever. He's like directing this jock to, to give a performance. He gives such good direction to the jock. The jock starts crying. And, you know, when he's showing his eight millimeter movies to classrooms or to uh, to whatever, it's like everybody is weeping and cheering the adults Just hundreds of people are watching these movies adults are cheering it on like this this kid's amazing and like i'm sure he was a very good eight millimeter backyard filmmaker but i'm just saying a kid's movies are only gonna be so good even when they're steven spielberg and they're not shot on eight millimeter oh, it's yeah. so frustrating <laughs> that you see eight millimeter you see 16 millimeter they look the same with like a digital grain thrown on it sure okay but we're looking through the past doesn't matter now i want to speak from a personal perspective My parents did get divorced at the age that Spielberg's parents got divorced. It wasn't about me in the way that it's about Spielberg in this movie. Hmm, That's interesting. Uh, So I won't argue with your lived Mm -hmm. experience on this, but to me... The stuff about his parents' divorce was the most compelling. Just the parents' relationship in general was the most compelling stuff mm. in the movie. And I think I like how the movie shows the relationship as this very long thing that there's no one thing really that tears it apart. And in fact, there's a love between these two that lasts basically forever in a way. But there's a love with another character that is greater. You know, other people give them another person gives the Michelle Williams character something else she needs that she really does need the paul dano character also needs something else that's sort of incompatible with what she needs it's sad and when the decision is ultimately made to divorce like it's a sad thing but these are life and death decisions basically we only have one life at the end of the day i think that what bothered me is that i did not buy michelle williams and paul dano's relationship and i think that a lot of it comes out of the fact of their very arch performances and that halfway through spielberg's like i'm bored with this uh divorce storyline let's make it about me in school Mm. (laughs) and the anti-semitic kids that surround me so i said that i found everything about his filmmaking not very compelling but actually i did find the stuff at the end where he (laughs) okay i'm not going to spoil everything but like well, oh, I want to spoil it so bad. I know, but the decision that he makes with his year-end film 
if you if you look at that and then you consider it with everything else Spielberg has done in his career and when he says that you know this is what I am as an artist what this character does in this scene is basically like what I've done ever since it's That's, basically I'm, saying I am a morally bankrupt artist I mean I, I find that fascinating I, I don't think he's thought about it that way do you think he did I think he knows that it's inexplicable mm-hmm. like what his character in the movie does what he does is inexplicable nobody in the movie is able to explain it and that there is a fundamental mystery of steven spielberg so as i watched this movie i kind of sunk lower into my seat being like this is not working for me at all from the like very arch performances to the spielberg stand-in being like the handsomest guy you could find that kind of looked like him there's a scene where he has his shirt off and he has six-pack abs i thought that was funny (laughs) yeah Uh, maybe i'm being a little bit indulgent here too because like if anybody's earned the right to a fucking vanity project absolutely yeah I said that too. I just wish it was a little bit more fun. I also found it aimless. When we talk about pacing and editing, I'm like, what is this movie about? Um, I liked that it was a long life, basically. Mm. Like, I liked that it wasn't a simple three act thing. You felt yourself living with these characters. And visually, the fact that it all looked the same really bugged me because they're moving town to town. Mm -hmm. And like when they moved to L.A., like it's blue still. (laughs) Like it's still blue. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, when I watched it, I liked how it looked, to Mm -hmm. be honest. I mean, I've had issues with Kaminsky in the past as well. Something like... Bridge of Spies and Lincoln are too dark for me. I know. But... that's what, It looks like Bridge of Spies. Like, it's that blue look that, like... Oh, but this movie has, has a... Spielberg slowly gone colorblind? What? And, like, he doesn't, can't tell anymore? I like the splashes of color in this movie. I <sighs> like the sort of Christmassy look to a lot of it. I just wish, and it's impossible for me to demand this upon Spielberg, because he is not the filmmaker he used to be. But I can imagine him making this movie, like, in the 80s, mm-hmm. and it would clearly feel very different. But especially color-wise. Mm-hmm. Like, it would feel more lived in. And some Something that I also had difficulty with is that because I never bought into the relationships, it felt like a lot of little details that were clearly from his life that never kind of coalesced into anything. And I know, like, lives don't coalesce, but it's a movie. Mm-hmm. So you can pointed in that direction fair enough you know what can i say i disagree i'm so glad that somebody that i know agrees with me whose opinion that i trust (laughs) otherwise looking at those reviews of people that were there they're like oh this movie barely worked but four stars (laughs) i'm like what (laughs) well some of us like late style (laughs) i knew that's what you were gonna say i knew it (laughs) well post is definitely late style so you gotta jump in on that train you gotta be didactic with this kind of stuff yeah no that's uh that's true and and also yeah i mean i'm sure i'm sure many people not me of course but many people get very biased when no less than God himself, Steven Spielberg, comes out after the movie to do a Q&A. Do you think that he was like buttering like the audience up when he came out oh, to do I a Q&A? I think he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Because no one, we were at a press screening. No one ever does Q&As at press screenings. No, I think um, I think Spielberg consciously chose Tiff because he thought he'd get the warmest reception here. Mm-hmm. And then he made sure he got the warmest reception. I mean, the highlight of that Q&A was definitely Judd Hirsch, who one question was asked and he was going to squeeze everything he could get out of it. Oh my God. God, the whole whole cast is on stage. Seth Rogen, Paul Dano, Tony Kushner's on stage, the kid and Hirsch and Spielberg. And like one question for Judd Hirsch. And I mean, it's a one man. Ten show. minutes. And he would like slow down and everybody would be like, oh, and then he would restart again. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, Judd, I love you. But but Steven Spielberg's on the stage. I want to hear from him. <laughs> so what other movies did you see, Will? Well, why don't we talk about another one that we both saw, The People's Joker, mm-hmm. with the most controversial film of the festival. The one that I was like, Will, if you want to see this movie, you better see it tonight or you won't see it at all. Yeah, I was planning to go to a press screening, but Justin told me that and I, you know, put my shoes on, made it to the midnight screening. And I'm glad I did because 
it was so great to see it at the public screening when there was basically knowledge in the room. Everyone knew in the room that like, we're getting away with something here. You know, this mm-hmm. is the only time we're going to be able to see this in, in this form. Now, I have a little bit of behind the scenes info about this film because I'm friends with the programmer, Peter Kaplowski. And Ooh, this name is, drop city over this here. This is one that he fought hard with to get into the film festival and that he had to jump through many hoops. It's not like he went, all right, let's program it. And Tiff's like, yep, whatever you say. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, wait, what happened? Everyone was aware of what this was going in. Okay. And the uh, cease and desist that was given to it the day of its premiere mm-hmm. uh, was definitely surprising that they waited until the last minute for something like that. Because I know that obviously lawyers have looked at this film. There are documents that exist that outline why it is fair use, mm. why it is parody. But when you're Warner Brothers, you can just slap a cease and desist on something, and for the most part, they won't fight you. Now, people may not know what this movie is. Could you explain it uh, quickly, Will? It's a film by a filmmaker named Vera Drew, and it is set in the Batman universe. Mm. It is about a character, uh, her coming of age as a trans woman, and she's also a Joker in the universe. Now, Jokers in this bat in this Gotham City in this Batman universe, Jokers are a class of comedian, and the only comedians. Yes, yeah. comedy is illegal. Uh, and many of them, the successful ones, get to be on a show called UCB Live, <laughs> yeah. uh, created by Lauren Michaels, <laughs> yes. who is a character in the film. <laughs> CGI Lauren Michaels. And all your favorite Batman characters are in here in bizarre versions. There's the Penguin, the Riddler, everyone. There are other Joker characters, the Jared Leto. Joker basically makes an appearance as an abusive boyfriend, but mostly it's about the Vera Drew character. She wrote, directs, and stars in the movie, her coming of age, her coming into her own identity, and the famous scene in the movie Joker, Joaquin Phoenix going down the stairs in that movie, is sort of recontextualized in here as sort of like a, a final embracing, a self-actualization moment. Now, Vera Drew has been an editor and a director on tons of Tim Heidecker projects. She directed the 2021 season of On Cinema. Right. So she's in this world. And you look at that trailer, you're like, oh, aesthetically, I can see like where it's coming from. There's a lot of Tim Heidecker actors that appear in this as well. As well as a lot of that Tim and Eric influence of dead and outdated and kitschy looking media forms the Gotham City in this movie is created it's all shot in front of green screens among other things I think because blockbusters are mostly shot in front of green screens now mm-hmm. so this is sort of like an airsats bootleg blockbuster the Gotham City is rendered through a lot of different sorts of designs there's stop motion scenes there's a scene that's made to look like Batman the animated series a little bit there's uh, the Bat Cave when you see it looks like an N64 graphic or maybe <laughs> yes. a little bit more primitive than that so just a lot of stuff and you know like something like the Lego Batman movie it's built out of 80 years of Batman lore uh, stuff from all the, uh, the whole history of Batman is in here Vera Drew loves Batman like yeah. it's not like ah this is dumb isn't it like look we're using all of this stuff to be dumb the thing that I think most people will find surprising when they finally sit down and watch the movie is that it's very earnest mm-hmm. like it is comedic there's comedy it's there, very funny but it's also about her journey and her sense of self-discovery in a way that is moving <laughs> if you can just let yourself go with the narrative that is being presented on screen and you know we're, we're always hearing that superheroes are our modern myths but i mean one company tightly regulates this particular modern myth mm. one company regulates all of these modern myths and 
at a certain point, uh, somebody like Batman, who's been around for so long and means so much to so many people, like, Wait. we grew up with Batman. Like, don't we have some ownership of this? Is Batman in this movie? There's a Batman-like figure, but he has a mustache, clearly making him visually distinct. <laughs> uh, that's that's right. That's right. <laughs> so uh, uh, Bruce Wayne is in it, though. Oh, that's right. As a groomer, which I heard some people had issues with legally, and then it was pointed out, that's what he is in the Joker movie, in the Todd Phillips Joker movie. There's precedent for the Bruce Wayne, or Wait. that that was his dad i can't remember <laughs> i, can't I think remember. he was abusive wasn't he like his dad's a bad guy in yeah. that movie like his his dad in that movie is a, an oligarch basically i can't remember yeah more I, about i'm not 100 percent sure because i'm still a good man and i you haven't seen that? joker yet <laughs> you know here's the thing the more you say that the more i think you think that's actually true <laughs> no it's not i just love saying it. it's funny <laughs> i feel i've seen the movie i see all these references and i'm like yeah i know what this is yeah, <laughs> like yeah. i have absorbed it by osmosis now is this movie parody number one who cares who cares <laughs> yeah come on man. I, hate, I hate having to make this defense because like even if it wasn't i think it should be allowed to be made like is wb paying you why are you making this argument online like because no, totally. i've been seeing people comment on a tweet that i made and it's just like they spent all day just arguing with people about this i'm like what are you doing you see people being like oh well shouldn't have made this movie if you didn't have the rights to it and stuff i mean i don't know <laughs> yeah who cares sorry it's is, are you losing money yeah <laughs> oh well it's diluting the diluting, diluting the <laughs> what do you care if the brand is diluted? Clearly the brand's not... Okay, listen, Dracula is in the public domain. Yes. Do you think that brand's been diluted? No. Do we think we're not going to get more Dracula movies coming out? No, fuck. Diluting the brand. Come on, give me a fucking break. So should this movie come out? Yes. Have they already jumped through tons of legal loopholes to get the movie out? Yes. Hopefully. I mean, it would be nice if... I know that Tim Heidecker mm. and all of his friends uh, are involved in the movie in some way. It would be nice if it's so just going to come to Tim Heidecker streaming service. That was probably the plan from the get go. Maybe it would be nice if somebody could like pay for the legal fight for mm. this. What's going to come next? They're going to take down deck of cards. Oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. But but I also know that like there was a screener of this movie. Mm. Um, there are files out there. Eventually, those files will get out. Mm. So you will see this movie sooner or later. I like how Vera said that she's going to have to edit the movie down. I'm like, what would she edit down? Like, what would she edit out? She would probably, I mean, I think one thing you would maybe do is like just bleep out the names of some of these characters. <sighs> Doesn't <Right>? matter. Right. <laughs> yeah. like, change the title probably, but I don't know. No, keep fighting. Do yeah. it. Get I, it out I'm there. I'm not saying they should. I'm saying that's like maybe what they would do. What was Warner Brothers thinking? This was absolutely a, um, what was that Disney one called again? Escape from Tomorrow? Yeah. Situation where Disney just ignored it and it just came out and it went away because nobody cared. Problem is, that was a bad movie and this <laughs> yes, is... But it, I don't think WB watched it and went, this is a good movie. We have to get in its way. But I saw a tweet by Jane Schoenbrunn. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing the name, but she made that film, uh, We're All Going to the World's Fair. Mm -hmm. um, and, and she wrote, it is not an accident that trans folks are drawn to mutating and deforming existing IP. It is our way of subverting and throwing bombs at a cis white male capitalist superstructure that seeks to own and control our generation's myths and imaginations justice for the people's joker and i mean i think that's an excellent explanation for sort of like why the copyright infringement element of this movie works in in harmony with the identity politics of the mm. film you know and if you're writing a comment right now to being like but they should just stop 
Don't. Don't care. <laughs> yeah, we don't care. <laughs> the laws should change. Yes. I mean, oh, you mean the laws that Disney rammed through to extend copyright to an absurd degree in a way that it never should have existed? I yeah. Mean, yeah. Are, are you sad that Dracula's in the public domain? No, you're not. And he should be in the public <laughs> domain because after a while, after a while, everyone who created the character is dead. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're not profiting off it. David Zaslav is profiting off Batman. <laughs> well, the executives aren't going to get money. <laughs> Bill Finger never got his cut of the Joker, ever. And he's dead. Yeah, he's dead. And, and you know what? Bob Kane's dead, too. So who <laughs> fucking cares? And at that point, the character's been around for so long that I really think it should just be like, what's a brand that became so ubiquitous that it lost the copyright? Like, is Kleenex still a copyrighted brand? I believe I it know. is. Or Band-Aid? Yeah, yeah. Something like something like that, though. I mean, Batman should just... Uh, he's too ubiquitous. He should be uh, fair use. Mm-hmm. I agree. Did you see anything else at TIFF? Because I think that's everything that we saw together. I saw uh, a bunch of movies that I really liked a lot, mm-hmm. um, as well as a few that I didn't like that much. But focusing on the ones that I really liked, Albert Sayer's Pacifiction. This one blew me away. It stars an actor named Benoit Magimel. Apologies if I mispronounce that. But he plays this guy who works for the French government in French Polynesia. He's sort of like a fixer. He's like a guy who works with everybody, the activists, the politicians, this, that, just on kind of on behalf of the French government. And he's uh, widely liked, you know, he's like a liberal fixer, you know, in this colonial setting. He's always cutting deals for everybody. And the movie... You know, Albert Sarah is a real art house guy. The movie is very boring, but it's a different kind of boring. It's a textured boring. You sit with him as he's having all these conversations with all these people that just go on for so long. And as you follow these conversations, you get a sense of who this guy is and what the situation is on this island, where there's this fragile piece between all of these groups that is about to blow over because there are people in the government who are just racists and basically want to blow this island off the face of the earth. There are activists who are saying, wait a minute, we hear there's going to be nuclear testing on this island again. There are these puppet, basically Banana Republic politicians who are like, hey, what's this we hear about nuclear testing? Oh, no, 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 don't don't worry about that. We don't know anything about that. Like the, the main character, this fixer, he's the center and the center will not hold. A lot of people have used the word apocalyptic to describe this movie. And as the movie goes on, you get that vibe. You get the vibe that like this island is headed for catastrophe, even though you've got this guy who's like this very skilled fixer in the middle of it. I said it was boring, and I say that with affection, because, like, the cumulative impact of this movie is really incredible. I loved it. Albert Sarah's Pacifiction. What else did you like? I actually didn't, like I said, see that many movies. I saw all the Midnight Madness ones, and of course, my friend Peter's programming is impeccable. Could not critique it in any way, shape, or form. Could put my industry pass in in, in jeopardy. (laughs) And he couldn't have done it without you, Justin. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I very much enjoyed... uh, uh, Sisu, which is the new film from the director of Big Game, which is... As well as Rare Exports. Yeah. It is a film about a Swedish so- uh, soldier during World War II who's just, you know, getting his gold out. And then suddenly, uh-oh, he runs into some Nazis who want that gold that he has, which leads to a 90-minute chase film. Uh, not much meat on them bones, but it's violent. It's fun. It's fast. A protagonist who doesn't talk. Yes, please. Love that. So it's definitely something that when you see it at midnight, it pops. And I think that people will enjoy it when they stumble upon it. We also have stuff like The Blackening, which I saw, which is a film directed by Tim Story of, I mean... 
The Man has not really made uh, a movie that I've liked. Ride, Fantastic Ride Four. Along, yeah. right? Yeah. Taxi with Jimmy Fallon and Queen Latifah. But this is basically a script that grew out of a sketch that a team did, which is what if a horror film only starred black characters and they were aware that they were in a horror film? And when I heard that concept, I was like, oh boy, is this going to be like a scary movie type situation? No, it's actually a straight ahead uh, slasher film, but with a lot of comedy to it, which I very much enjoyed. I mean, with a script this good, even Tim Story couldn't screw it up. <laughs> All the actors are very charismatic. It really popped in the theater. And I think that there's a bit of a bidding war for it right now because it was a sales title. And I'd be curious to see if someone picks it up and tries to go wide with it because I think it could do very well and be a word of mouth hit. Uh, so Chandler Levax, I like movies. Uh, I liked it. You know, mm -hmm. I thought it was uh, very entertaining. I mean, uh, I've known Chandler for a long time, so I guess I went in with a certain bias there. But uh, then if you know somebody, uh, uh, there's also there's also part of you that thinks that, like, maybe it won't be good. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I will say that this one, which is about a young, quote unquote, film bro in uh, Burlington, Ontario, learning to become a better person, sort of a teenager. I mean, the main character in it, Isaiah Latinen, I can... I, yeah, I, I'm, good try. I'm, I'm mispronouncing names like Tim Heidecker on On Cinema <laughs> constantly on this podcast. But I mean, th this kid, I think, is really good in the movie. Mm. Just really, like, sells this character, like, makes you empathize with this character, but is also, like, has real sharp edges just as a performer, as a screen presence. So I really liked him a lot. Uh, I also, a movie that I really liked is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed by Laura Poitras, who did Citizen Four. And this is about the photographer and artist Nan Golden. She used to do pictures, I'm, I'm not sure how to describe them, pictures of her life, photos of her life. She used to hang out with people like John Waters and Cookie Mueller and a lot of photos of New York Bohemia in the 70s and 80s. And she's a recovering opioid addict. And she spends a lot of her days now campaigning against the Sackler family, who were the big uh, pharmaceutical oligarchs who behind the opioid crisis. But how can someone who invests in the art so much in New York be bad, Will? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, Nan Golden's idea is that basically the courts aren't going to punish these people. No one's going to punish these people. Even if they have to pay $5 billion in reparations, they're still going to have uh, 50 nothing, billion. Yeah. You know? So the only way you can get at them is through their prestige and to protest museums and have them take the names down off the walls. And that's the only way you can get them. And Nan Golden, being a very storied and famous artist herself, is someone to lead the campaign. And I think the movie does a very skillful job, not only on her current activism work, but also just telling the long and very interesting story of her, her life through her photos. The movie puts a lot of trust in the photos themselves. And uh, it's one of those movies, like, it's almost moving by definition, but mm -hmm. it's also very well done. So I think that's it for all the films that we saw at TIFF. I saw some other ones, I but saw if, other I, ones if I didn't too. like it, I don't want to talk about it. So. Yeah, yeah, those are the ones I have things to say about. And film festivals, the definition, if you get a pass and you go see a lot of movies, you're going to see, like, I don't know, nine-tenths of movies that you're like, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, but there's something about just seeing them all together in this context. Mm -hmm. You know, it, for me, it's fun to get a sense of, like, the state of the union of cinema. Mm, so you can write another piece on it soon? <laughs> I might. Yeah. Wait, but you just did. Check it out at Will Sloan's blog. Another <laughs> state of the union uh, of cinema thing. It'll be coming soon, I'm sure. So that's it for the Important Cinema Club. No letters today, because we ran, like, 15 minutes longer than we usually do. And if you're at TIFF, I'm going to release this one 
soon. Uh, there's still Midnight Madness screenings that are going on. It goes on till Saturday. That's when the people come out and see movies because all the celebrities are gone. Right. Oh, and on the Patreon, we've got Tiff Fever. So we're going to be talking about the greatest Tiff film of all time. Oh, boy. Jiminy Glick in La La Wood. <laughs> a film set at the Toronto International Film Festival. Briefly, supposedly. The rest was shot in Vancouver. And what are we going to talk about next week? So next week, we're going to finally teach our audience something. <laughs> It's time you folks knew about the birds and the bees. We're talking about roadshow exploitation mm. movies. Roadshow exploitation movies from like before the 1960s. Stuff like Marijuana. Stuff like She Should Have Said No. Edgar G. Elmer's Damaged Lives. And uh, maybe a nudist camp film? I don't know. So- something like that. Stuff that you can find on Kino's uh, Forbidden Fruits Blu-ray sets. And yeah, like movies that in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, these entrepreneurs would take from town to town and talk about sordid subject matter but ostensibly in an educational purpose to to save lives so until then my name is Justin the clue i'm will Sloan. thanks for listening it finally happened jean Luc godard passed away oh my god yes he d- he did i i actually am kind of amazed about it like i always thought you would die before he does. Like it just, he just be laughing over your grave. He just felt like a fact of life. And the fact that he kept outliving all his new wave compatriots, there was something about him that seemed like he was going to live just out of spite. Well, Um, some could argue that he was maybe just living out of spite. (laughs) And well, he chose assisted suicide at the Mm -hmm. end. So he, he could have lived out of spite longer if he wanted to. Now there were a lot of rumors floating around about John the Goddard that like he was having money problems and was like living in somebody else's apartment. Yeah. Supposedly this went around on Twitter like mm-hmm. six months ago, Nicole Brunez, the film historian in Paris, supposedly like wanted to start an Indiegogo campaign for him or a GoFundMe, and uh, he wouldn't because he was too proud. But I don't think that turned out to be true at all, actually. He died in his home in Rolle, Switzerland, mm-hmm. surrounded by loved ones, including uh, his partner of many years, Anne-Marie, and... Um, you know the man will live forever in that google street view photo where you can see him walking around Uh, that photo has always been great because it's kind of been hard to me for me always to imagine him functioning in the real world like imagine godard going and getting food at the grocery store now will this lead to a kind of re-examination of some of his work i saw some people on twitter being like ah finally it's time for me to wander into the 80s godard and will there be more of an appreciation now that his entire work is set in stone unless there's another movie coming out that he was working on i like to think he has a prince-like vault full of fragments of unfinished stuff but uh, he i mean you could easily just slap it together and you're like yeah guitar like tupac he's putting out a new movie every couple years (laughs) i don't know about that but but (laughs) will there be a greater appreciation i mean i think compared to 10 years ago there is a greater appreciation Mm -hmm. for the broad range of work because when i was younger i mean some of that 80s stuff was just very hard to find even like but now every man for himself is on criteria hail mary's ton of this stuff is on streaming services I, th- I think like people who really love Godard and really love movies a lot of them really love that 80s stuff but that's not what I'm saying I'm saying will people challenge themselves to jump into it um, I think some will I, I think it will always be a minority proposition mm. frankly I think Histoire du Cinema will always be for a self-selecting few yeah a 0.001% few but now, that but that 0.001% loves it <laughs> I mean uh, maybe not even Histoire du Cinema like when did uh, Putting Your Right Up go Put Your Right Up that was 87 or so okay so that's still within that period of that weird period that we've talked about where it's like yeah I laid the loans in my movie I'm back to making narrative films aha <laughs> gotcha but, you know, 10 years ago, I feel like the consensus that he was great from 1960 to 1968. Mm. And then after that, 
never again. He just became self-indulgent and uh, politically doctrinaire and uh, obscure movies that nobody cares about. I feel like, at least in cinephile circles, that idea has been very challenged in recent years. Like, mm. just as the stuff has become more available, that doesn't necessarily mean you like it or, or that everyone likes it. I like his 80s movies. First Name Carmen, I think, is great. I, I love Every Man for Himself. But what about beyond that? What about his 90s movies? Uh, the 90s ones, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen uh, Forever Mozart kind of went over my head when I saw we did a whole episode recently on Histoire du Cinema, which I have some ambivalence about. And I think the the 2000 stuff, Elage de l'Amour, Notre Musique, Film Socialism, Film Socialism, and the new one, The Image Book. I mean, those ones, I'm all kind of mixed on. But what about our 3D Blu-ray of his 3D movie? I had fun seeing the 3D one, Goodbye to Language, in a theater. Uh, I saw somebody put it on a Nintendo DS, because that works in 3D uh, to get that 3D effect out of it. I mean, what was great about Godard towards the end was i mean he was using cell phones and mini dv cameras and all sorts of stuff and i mean even as his worldview got increasingly despairing he loved using a cell phone Mm -hmm. like he could still find a lot of beauty in cool new ways to make images and are you jealous that one of your friends did get to speak to him on a phone david davidson toronto's own legend david davidson was at the press conference at con for the image book and spoke to godard on a on a on facetime and i just love if you look at the video it's some nonsense answer that he gave but doesn't matter it's godard you're talking to him i mean all his answers are nonsense i mean i find godard's movies much easier to watch even the most obscure ones than his interviews are to read would recommend that dick Cavett interview where he keeps Godard for two episodes. I have seen it. I mean, when you watch that Dick Cavett interview, it's incredible. This was on TV. Yeah. You got this mumbly Swiss French man like mumbling about Jerry Lewis. Dick Cavett trying to crack him like a nut that he'll never break. And I, I just like, who watched it? I mean, at the end of the first episode, Cavett, who seems determined to make this work, ends up with like, would you mind staying just a little mm-hmm. bit long? I love that he could just unilaterally decide, no, we're doing a second episode yeah. with this <laughs> French avant-garde filmmaker. <laughs> that does not happen anymore well unless it's in podcast form but listen i'm sad to see godard go because whatever you think of the later ones i mean uh he was still doing it mm-hmm. uh, he was still working it and who at, in his 90s was still like bringing the heat how long know. before statue goes up in that swiss town of mr godard i hope soon mm-hmm. and you'll be there taking a selfie right beside it <laughs>